0: I have reading for today comes from Exodus chapter 32 and 33, starting at verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, And I will give your descendants all this land, I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Skipping down to verse 31. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. And moving on to chapter 33, starting from verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: It's often been said that if only God would put in an appearance, then I could believe. God's seeming absence from our world is a big problem for many unbelievers because for them it isn't obvious that he's real. It could also be suggested it's also part of the struggle for those of us who claim to be believers. Way back in 1961, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. In it, he argued that most adults are operating with a Sunday school view of God while living out their adult lives in an increasingly complex world. They therefore dismiss a God who they have never made the effort to really know in a more adult and substantial way. Well, that was way back in 1961, and if anything, it could be suggested that God is seemingly even smaller today. God has been dom- domesticated and reduced to helping us with our very personal needs but is seemingly absent from the bigger activities of our world and perhaps our lives. To the average non-believer, it's hard to know how you might see him and therefore to believe in him. I wonder if you've ever pondered the question of what it might be like if God did suddenly turn up. If you got to meet God directly, to stand in his presence and to talk with him face to face. If God were to suddenly turn up here now visibly in a way that was all clear to all, how would it be? Overwhelming, frightening, awesome, terrifying, blinding? Would we all instantly hit the floor in obeisance or would we rise with uplifted hands? Would we flee in fright? What would we say to God? Where would you begin? This is a very poor comparison, but a few years ago, Karen and I were in Antibes in southern France and an exiled AFL coach wandered into a cafe we were in. One was tempted to bowl up and say in a broad Aussie accent, G'day, but then you think, what would one say or ask? If God were here now, anything that did come to mind would probably seem grossly inadequate and even banal. In this series we're doing on people in prayer, we have thus far reflected on Abraham, who stood before God and dared to question God's character. Last week, we explored Jacob's experience of literally wrestling with God and was ultimately crippled into dependency. Today, we'll try and get our heads around Moses on the mountain, both pleading with God in prayer and then being literally surrounded by the glory of God. It's a remarkable moment that takes place in the context of gross sin. Today's readings from Exodus 32 and 33 are in the context of a moment of monumental crisis. Moses has been on the mountain with God, receiving not only the Ten Commandments, but also the decrees and instructions that would be the basis of Israel's life with God. The people grow impatient and make for themselves a golden calf around which they are worshipping, dancing and disporting themselves. These are the very same people that had experienced God's miraculous deliverance as they had walked out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea with the waters held up beside them, had been led by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night, had eaten the food that God provided for them to eat on a daily basis. Moses was appalled and embarrassed by these people that God had conscripted him to lead. What a bizarre contrast for Moses standing in God's very presence hearing him speak and coming down from the mountain to see the wanton sin and rebellion. Moses will is torn between his two loves, a passionate love for God's people and yet a deep and abiding love for God himself and a desire to see his name honoured. The scene is full of tension and the stakes are high. God says, I have seen these people and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. In chapter 32, verses 9 and 10, The temptation of God's offer must have been irresistible for Moses. The Israelites were a constant source of tension and frustration for him. They were fickle, argumentative, ungrateful, and spent a lot of time whinging. They had cheered him when things went well and turned on him when things were tough. How tempting it must have been to get rid of them and to make a fresh start with his own household. And as tempting as this may seem, the thought never seems to have crossed his mind. His prayer reflects two concerns, his tender concern for the nation he led and his passionate concern for the reputation of God himself. Lord, why should your anger burn against your people, he prays. Is this the same Moses who had resisted God's call at the burning bush? The same Prince of Egypt who had fled and lived in exile for 40 years? The same man who had strongly resisted becoming Israel's leader? Why would he be so keen to see God's favour rest on a group of 2 million people who at that very moment were caught up in a drunken and debauched display? So he prays, turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. He reminds God of the promises he had made to them to make this people into a mighty nation. Chapter 32, verses 11 to 13. Moses is bold and has the temerity to stand before God and challenge him directly. This is the boldness of a mother bear seeking to protect her cubs or a lioness whose kittens are threatened. His one concern is that Israel should be delivered from the consuming fire. Have you ever prayed this way? Have I? Should we come before God like this? It's likely we have never been where Moses was and faced the terrible scene that he was confronted with. Yet one could suggest that we seem to live our lives very comfortably and the idea of God as judge is either passé or, frankly, embarrassing. Goodness knows we've all been shamed by the actions of few in the Christian church in relation to sex abuse. The wider community is of consistent and regular judgment. Have we? Should we? Do we stand to pretend that there is nothing to condemn? How should we pray about this most uncomfortable of areas? Or do we sense anxiety in coming before God about our sins and others? As part of our Anglican heritage, we say public and corporate prayers of confession together. And in the main, we do it seemingly easily and without any obvious discomfort. The God of Sinai is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is immutable. He does not mellow with time or culture. He's the God of grace, for sure, but he's also the God who desires that his people be holy as he is holy. As John White has put it, his self-appointed public relations experts have done us and him a disservice in toning down the harsh outlines of his image, making him more suitable to our preferences in God's. God's image has changed with the times. Perhaps we too could be accused of being worshippers of the sort of golden calf. C.S. Lewis got it right in the Narnia tales when he reminded the subjects that Aslan... Is not a tame lion. We cannot pray aright if we don't recognise that God is both awesome and fearful and yet amazingly, totally approachable. We need to come before God as he truly is both awesome and yet a consuming fire. None of us are worthy to stand in his presence and none of us have even begun to approach the holiness that he desires of us. While we are deeply resistant to the holiday, we must see sin as God sees it. For God, it is deeply distressing. He takes our, takes our sin so seriously that he did everything he required for it to be dealt with. The cross on the hill at Golgotha only makes sense in the light of what we see here on Mount Sinai. So Moses continues to plead. He's urged upon God the honour of his name. Why should the Egyptians question God's motives? He also reminds God of his own promises and covenant. Remember Isaac, Abraham, Isaac and Israel your servants to whom you did swear by your own self. Moses reminds God of the way he has dealt with his servants in the past and that he stands in that tradition. This is a lesson for us too. For the God with whom we are called to plead is the God of Moses, the God of David, the God of Elijah, Elisha and Paul. If God does not change, then he can deal with us as he dealt with them. Delighting to respond to us today as in the days gone by. Our faith rests upon the unchanging character of God revealed in his mighty acts. Our faith finds full expression in the living Lord Jesus. The heart of God is gladdened as he hears Moses' prayer. Moses has spoken to God as he truly is, and God in turn has listened and heard him. After his prayer, Moses comes down from the mountain and is confronted with the reality that he has been praying about. He throws down the tablets of stone and crushes and destroys the golden calf. He calls for those who are still for the Lord to come to him and the Levites come forward. The Levites are sent forth and the judgment of God comes down on 3,000 of the Israelites. The next day Moses calls the people together and says he will go back before the Lord to see if he will offer full atonement for their sins. Moses' prayer is both beautiful and moving. He freely acknowledges the situation in chapter 32 verses 31 to 32. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive them sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. There are no excuses for sin. It's true that temptation under some circumstances is harder to resist than under others. It could also be true that extenuating circumstances can mitigate the offence. But sin is sin. To say it's all social conditioning doesn't take away from what has happened. Cancer is no less deadly because we have an explanation for it, nor is sin. As we look around the church in our world, we must adopt the same outlook. Sin is always sinful. It's always abhorrent. We ourselves may plead for mercy, but not on the grounds of extenuating circumstances. God is aware of extenuating circumstances, but the terrible nature of sin remains unchanged. Moses' prayer is not one of criticism or condemnation, He simply lays the facts on the table. He's desperate. He knows that God is fully aware of what has happened. There is no use pretending, and he knows that God has every right to condemn. Still, he pleads for forgiveness. If we pray for the sin of ourselves or others, we can't pretend, nor can we condemn. We can only seek God's forgiveness. Moses puts himself in the place of his people. If not, blot me out of the book you have written. Moses will stand or fall with his people. On the way up the mountain, Moses has time to ponder God's earlier suggestions. His mind is made up. God will do as God wills, but Moses' destiny is bound up with that of his people. They may be fickle, they may be foolish, they may be grossly sinful, they may be incredibly annoying, but they are his people as much as they are God's people. He will live to keep on leading them, or he will die with them in the desert. The Lord commands the people to proceed to Canaan. They were to strip off their ornaments as a sign of mourning because they were still under God's judgment. Moses' own tent is moved a distance from the people and when he entered the tent, the people would all stand as the pillar of cloud descended upon it. God was present with Moses, but seemingly not with his people. For Moses, it was a privilege and a glory. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Chapter 33, verse 11. In spite of this, Moses wasn't satisfied. For most of us, this high level of intimacy with God would be enough. Yet Moses wanted not only mercy for God's people, but God's presence as well. So yet again, he throws caution to the wind and he pleads with God. To paraphrase in verses 12 to 16 of chapter 33, he says, It's all very well to tell me you love me, that you know me, that I enjoy your favour. If this is true, then please teach me your way so that you won't leave us. Give us a chance of learning to please you. There is no point in our proceeding to Canaan if you are not with us. What difference would there be between this people and any other if your presence is no longer among us? How will anyone know that we enjoy your favour? I wonder how often we have pleaded with God for today's church, for our church. We may whinge about things, but do we plead with God? We are in the midst of the golden calves of material prosperity, of worldly prestige and respectability, of academic degrees and political influence. Are our successes the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit or the use of our skills and ingenuity? Is God merely our figurehead, our corporate logo? God responded to Moses' prayer. He responded to it because he had taught Moses to pray as he did. He had prayed the prayer that God had longed to hear. His presence would indeed accompany them. Moses had prayed and struggled with God in prayer, not for himself but for God's people. Now he reflects his love not just for his people but for God's person. The two loves were not at odds with each other, but joined as one. So he prays in chapter 33, verse 18, Show me your glory. This is back to where we began today. What would it be like to behold God's glory, to stand literally in his presence? Moses can't control the impulse to ask this most bold of questions. He yearns for God with a passion that demands to be expressed. I pray you, show me your glory. I wonder whether you've ever had this sense or this desire. Certainly many of our contemporary songs reflect a passion for God and his glory as well as a desire to enter into his presence. Uh, on the trip that we went to France, Karen and I also went to Spain and went to the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona and were blown away with the sense of awe and God's presence that was evident in that most remarkable of spaces. Uh, that was kind of, ex- like sort of exa- exemplified, I think, by the fact that great hordes of tourists would be pouring in and the minute they walked into the building, everyone just went silent. Feelings follow faith, so this can't be conjured up. We, by faith, draw near to God, at the Scriptures, that he may one day so disclose himself to us, that the passion that shook Moses might shake us too. In the meantime, we shouldn't get caught up in never-endingly seeking a passionate experience, but should focus on having faith and trust in Christ. God granted Moses his final request, at least as far as it was possible. From a crack in a rock, Moses caught a glimpse of God's back. Such is God's glory that to do anything more would have led to Moses' destruction. How do we imagine God in all his glory? Brilliant light, dazzling brightness, emanating power? In Moses' case, God proclaims his name and renews his commitment to compassion and mercy. We read in chapter 34, verse 29, When Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hands, He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with God. Such was its brilliance that they covered his faith with a veil whenever he met with them. He who had seen God's glory now reflects it. It would be easy for us to conclude that Moses' experience is way beyond the ordinary, therefore has nothing to say to us today. Moses was weak and fearful. He led Israel not because he chose, but because God had called him to do it. God calls each of us to We may not be destined to play a part in the rise and fall of nations, but God wants to speak with us face to face as a person speaks with a friend. He wants us to share our concerns with him. He wants us to hold him to his own word, something you can only do if you believe that word. Moses had two loves, a passionate love of God and an equally passionate love for his people, as incredibly frustrating as they were. Is there any other God like our God? Is there any other God who is both majestic and awesome power yet invites us to live in his presence and to share our life with him? That God loves us as his people, as frustrating as we are. God wants us to be his friends. And it's as we trust God that we too can behold his glory and in so do, doing shine his reflected glory in our world today.